0: For May 11th, 2020, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 619 Wrestling in Silence. Overthinking it, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny, it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are together, huddled in a a, a crowded theater, waiting for the curtain to go up and for an amazing live performance to uh, uh, to astonish and delight us. We're going to talk about live performance and uh you know the thing that in this episode the thing that we all have a dearth of right now with all the theaters being closed and concerts canceled and and all manner of gatherings suspended whatever kind of live performance you like be it theatrical be it musical be it sports related be it any kind of uh of convening of people it, it's all on pause right now and and you can't do it what does that mean uh, how are we coping? What do we think will change um, when we do come back to whatever uh, the, the new equilibrium is? Because it, if we say back to normal, I mean, that's fine for certain certain, uh, certain values of normal with the notable caveat that normal will not, rec- will not resemble the, the normal that you have uh, experienced so far in your life. I'm Matt Rather. I am here with uh, my good friends and live performers, Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hey, Matt. And Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. Hello, Matthew. Pete, you brought this uh, topic to our attention with a a video from the artistic director of the the Guthrie Theatre that had been circulating. Why don't you tell us about it a little bit?
1: Sure. So, Joseph Hodge, the artistic director of the Guthrie Theatre, released a video... That the ostensible point of the video was to map out in a very superficial way the uh, what the plan is for this big institution. Right, the Guthrie Theater is one of the United States' biggest nonprofit theaters. Uh, it is part of and and for those who are from outside of the United States, the theater setup in the United States is a little bit tricky, right? We have Broadway, which is in New York City. And then we have theater scenes in sort of the individual cities that are all relatively new. We have touring companies, which was the New York theater that would tour across the country. But in the mid to as of the mid 20th century, we really didn't have. We have pro wrestling, right? <laughs> we have like uh, religious theater and stuff, but we didn't really have kind of institutional theater traditions in much of the stretch of the country. And so uh, the Ford Foundation, actually, and a bunch of other people seeded these regional theaters that are allowed to operate as cultural institutions, not supported by the state, but with certain tax advantages. They're allowed to operate as nonprofit cultural institutions, provided that they also live up to a variety of other constraints, right, Uh, which are often – torturously nebulous but like you know they run schools and they they kind of take on cultural missions and they look at their programming often as something that either, either you know it's the eternal battle between like we need to put on the work of brave new artists to expand voices in society to serve a kind of new pluralistic mode of virtual acceptance versus like we need to put moving out the Billy Joel jukebox musical on in order to keep the lights on in here right it's the eternal question but anyway the Guthrie is one of the big kahunas on this block in the United States it's in Minnesota and a great institution. Right. And uh, by any measure, I think um, I don't know much about Joseph Hodge personally. This is the first I've encountered him. Uh, but, you know, he he has this video and he's basically saying that they're not going to do any plays for a while, but they're not fundamentally changing their model on a permanent basis. They're not saying, OK. Uh, the Guthrie heretofore has been a major institution in the service of live theater. Given that we can't deliver live theater to our audience, we are going to become a video channel, right? We're going to be we're going to make the pivot to video, right? We're going to we're going to only do virtual stuff, or we're going to kind of alter how we approach it. No, he's he's basically saying that at some point we're going to get back to it, and. Uh, and he makes an argument. And I think the, the interesting part, that's the sort of a sensible point, right, is that we are not giving up on live performance. We will come back to live performance, but it will be at some point in the future. Uh, and this is, of course, if you're listening to this in the future, right, that is because at the time that this podcast is being recorded, we are at one of the relatively local regional maxima. We hope of the COVID nineteen epidemic, and everybody is inside, right? So, like at this point, you know, New York is is been the big epicenter in the United States. Uh, the question of whether and to what degree it's going to spread to the rest of the United States, other than a few hotspots, is kind of an open question. You, if you're going back and listening to this in the future, may know how this plays out. We do not, uh, but the main idea here is that in the future, the Guthrie will reopen and we will, will, will reopen with live shows. Right. Um, and he makes the comparison to ancient Greek theater, which is of course very common when you're talking about the history of the theater. And it's, it's, it's a pretty straight line. And, and certainly the, uh, the the gross inferior, inferiority complex of the European Middle Ages, right, as is evidenced in the name Renaissance, w- would reinforce the notion that ancient Greek theater was where it's at. Though of course, uh, you know, it's also got two turntables and a microphone, so it's got that going for it. Uh, by which I mean it's quality. But yes, uh, he he points out, like, oh, I went to Greece and I saw a Greek amphitheater, and I was inspired in in seeing the theater that it's really not that different from what we do. Uh, you know, if not at the Guthrie, at any particular theater, take away the lights, take away the subscriptions, take away the Reese's peanut butter cups, or whatnot. If you're at a theater that has Reese's peanut butter cups, if you had one, count your blessings and hope it opens after this is all done, because that's pretty solid. You usually, don't get snacks on that caliber. But at any rate, uh, theater. He, he's he's making a case, and I wanted to I wanted to talk to you guys about this because he's making a case that's very familiar for people who've been in and around the theater, which I know Matt, you and I have been both in and around the theater as an art form, and and as a practice right it's you can sort of think of it as yoga right like we have been around the theater in that we have like done the stretching right we have like done the theater thing we have been around the theater as a practice in the sense that like doing theater over and over again for a period of time has a certain impact on how you view your life and structure it and like what sort of benefits and drawbacks you know it has in much the same way a yoga practice would and then we've also been around the theater the institutional business right i worked as a management Programs associate for a theater management research company at one point, doing kind of fiscal health of the nonprofit theater work uh, after college. Oh, and hey, I know- Pete how
0: how was the fiscal health of the nonprofit theater? Excellent, I
1: assume. <laughs> Not great, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, So in the United States, just as the sort of the basic primer and and you hear from a lot of people. Right. And this, I think, is particularly this is particularly uh, trenchant, I guess, is the word that comes to mind, whether it's accurate or not. What with the recent uh, closing of the physical permanent physical locations of the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in New York City, right? The improv theater where I first started in improv. Um, A lot of people would argue and talk about, you know, oh, the theater should do this. So the theater should do that. It needs to do this. It needs to do that. But they don't have an idea of the constraints that a theater operates under in terms of the reality of the industry. Uh, especially in the United States, where public funding for the arts is uh, irregular and precarious, to put it kindly, right? As opposed. Now, keep in mind, we also are not a nation that has a kind of civilization culture score uh, (laughs) in the sense that one might think. I mean, I guess you could say that we've like got the runaway cultural victory in that sense. But but like to an extent, we don't really have uh, a sort of unified philosophy and vision for public art in, in, in our country. Um, and it doesn't have a lot of support relative to the size and scope of the economy and relative to what it gets in other countries. And in particular, being an artist even at a high caliber is like really rough. Um, and so right all this with all this in mind, the basics of the nonprofit theater to keep in mind is that almost no theater makes its money back its expenses back on its shows you could think of shows as kind of a loss leader right and and a theater at least when i was doing this work you know 15 years ago uh, a theater was doing really great if it was making back half of its costs from just the revenue that it took in from selling tickets right if it was operating at a 50% loss just as a as a as an exhibiting arena right as sort of an exhibitor of shows then it was doing really good and it had to make up the rest of it through donations and through uh, educational programs and through classes and events right and then and, and all sorts of other things that they would deploy their resources in and so it working for an arts organization is often an exercise in scrambling for fundraiser money from rich donors or from sort of semi rich but consistent subscribers who pay a big premium right over what well if not a big premium then certainly like Pre-buy a large number of tickets, right? Which is sort of one of the artistic concerns. But it, it
0: always yeah. it always ends up being a big premium, doesn't it? Because yeah, like at so the, yeah, that, you, know, you know, by the time that they're actually like desperate to fill houses, you know, those tickets. I've never seen like almost never seen. I mean, Hamilton, you know, the Book of Mormon, right? Like where these things get absurdly inflated. But the the I've almost never seen a show in a regional theater not offer you know essentially like eighty percent discounts on its advertised ticket price by. by. By the time actual exhibition rolls around.
1: Right, right. And the the dynamic in the U.S. is that New York has the theater enthusiastic enthusiastic foot traffic to support a for-profit theater industry. And then there is various sorts of touring venues that can support various sorts of shows. But that these theaters that have these artistic missions that are exhibiting theater as sort of a habitual art. Right. Like I'm going to go to the theater. Right. Uh, And and I'm not going to go see Hamilton or Hamilton decaf right or hamilton the third. i mean hamilton's a bad example because hamilton was that sort of really rare uh you know, great movie that wins all the Oscars, right? It's like, it was interesting and and popular.
0: It was, let's call it the, the Mad Max Fury Road of its
1: time. Yes, yes, you exactly. know? It was a blockbuster with a great deal of credibility in any particular slice that's relevant to how you look at the mission of theaters, right? It was representative, it was boundary pushing, it felt current, right? It was historically interesting. It was it was interesting from a just sort of how you structure and put on a show. The music was good, right? Hamilton has all these things going for it. Uh, but there's a lot of shows that are kind of more like we know this is what people are going to watch and this is what we're going to put on. And the regional theaters exist in a very awkward tension between wanting to resist doing that and doing it even more so. Uh, but I'm, I'm digressing here. Right. that said like, well, you know, we don't want to just put on, you know, uh, you know, the the Jersey Boys. Right. So instead, we're going to do Streetcar Named Desire for the 50th time. Right. And it's it's like. You know, but these are this is a sort of wire discussion of the challenges of theater. But the main the main gist of it, right, is that theaters in general they are not a particularly viable commercial business uh, at large scale. Uh, You need to really really crack the math in order to run a theater as a business and it is not easy uh, in particular it ends to ends up being supported and this was the other thing i found out by a lot of people who work for very little or for free even at the top levels of management around the country so like you would be you would see you know the executive director of this theater company that has a 50 million dollar annual budget makes a salary of 0 dollars
0: mm. right Yeah, but just think of all the just think of all the think of all their equity compensation, and they get (laughs) (laughs) and they get use of the showcase, (laughs) (laughs) and they get use of the private jet. I you know I once had like a a slightly heated exchange with the managing director of a Tony Award-winning regional theater. when I was in my twenties and I, I won't name the person, uh, but I said to this person, like, well, you know, it seems a little like a lot of people have, have attracting people into theater seems to be, uh, a difficult thing to do because, you know, the jobs aren't, uh, that well paying. And if you are, you know, capable of being professionally successful, you, you might want stability, you know, like, uh, uh, reliable housing, like ed- education for your children, food on the table and a reliable cadence. You might want these things and elect for that reason not to go into the theater. And, uh, this person here, she said, I don't know, Matt. I, you know, I work at a, a regional theater and I make a great salary. Now, because these things are public, I happen to know that this managing director made something like 170 170- $70,000, uh, at an unheard of annual salary. Uh, it, and it's like, well, it was like talking with, with, you know, uh, talking with Bill Gates or something. And it's like, well, I don't know. I feel like, you know, software is an easy business to, to make billions and billions of dollars in like that. It was a pyramid with very, very steep sides. And it made me, uh, made me a little angry to hear that, well, yeah. that, that level as, you know, as I was considering whether I would, um, uh, spend more of my life in this, uh, in this industry, spoiler alert, I did not. <laughs>
1: Right. I mean, I love the theater. Don't get me wrong. And I've spent a lot of time and dedicated a lot of energy to supporting theater in various types. But as a business, it is rough. Right. <laughs> and, and part of part of it is that, of course, it is a big sufferer from Baumal's cost disease, which is my favorite Wikipedia page of the past six months, <laughs> uh, which is the notion that um, as professions are able to increase their productivity, uh, if a whole bunch of different professions all at the same time are able to increase their productivity, then the professions that aren't able to increase their productivity are going to become really un, uh, uncompetitively expensive. Uh. <laughs> right? And that's because, like, you need to... You need to find out you know an incentive to keep people from departing for the other industries uh and and keeping work from departing for those other industries and and this is put forward as a potential and partial explanation for the cost of medical care education uh but it started out as analysis of the arts right And, and in this case the rather silly in the united states proposition that uh that a uh, a, a uh, an orchestral violinist, right, keeps making more and more money, right? Like, even though they do the same work, whereas, like, somebody who makes widgets can now make a thousand times more widgets than they could 200 years ago. And so why does the violinist make more money? But it's this whole dynamic of, like, Theater has scale problems and this is and this is what it gets back to with this whole question of like live versus virtual. The idea isn't necessarily that the virtual medium frees you up to do more interesting things. It's that it allows you to deliver at scale potentially and that means that you could lower your costs right for your tickets. If 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 the whole proposition were like we need to make money on tickets and the the running rate for watching a show on your computer is currently zero dollars, right? Like that means we need to like make it up in volume. Uh, but no, but I'm I'm joking. But that's the idea, right? Is that like uh, the theater is competing against. Uh, it's competing against other forms of really very similar things, right, basically up, up to and including video, video of theatrical shows, right, up into including people doing theater in their own homes. Uh, And and those have the productivity advantage and are able and also have the scale advantage. And so they're able to deliver to a larger number of people, which makes live theater really expensive. Plus, with live theater, you need real estate and you have to put in a heating and air conditioning system and you need more insurance and all this other stuff. Right. And so it gets very. Very tricky. Um, but but that that's the sort of that's the sort of question that occasioned this video. Right. Is like, are you going to finally capitulate on this whole question of productivity costs? But it's more along the lines of the question of coronavirus. Right. Being like, well, you can't put a show on live. Are you going to do it virtually? And and, the, and, the, and the, what he says, right, is this notion that people who come together at theaters uh, he, uh, experience something that people who watch something not in theaters, don't experience collectively. And this is something that goes back to Aristotle. This is kind of core to a lot of theater scholarship and a lot of both theater thinking and wishful thinking, right? Thinking, wishful, and no. Um, Which is like, we've all heard, because we've been around the theater, which is, of course, so incredibly dedicated to the necessity of fundraising and justifying itself, both for, like, grants from the public and also from donations from from private sector. The the various kind of, uh, and also because the theater tends to have a lot of people who are big orators and flowery speakers like myself um the various sorts of florid and overwrought uh, justifications for the superiority of live theater over uh something you watch on your computer or listen to on your computer or on your tv uh right or a movie theater right which even now seems like a a shared experience relative to uh Relative to to what we've got.
0: Well, by the um, way, the the theater, like uh, theatrical motion picture exhibitors, co-opt some of that sanctimony around the experience of of going to a movie theater, right? Of going yeah. to like you know buy your popcorn and sit among you know your fellow humans in community, reacting collectively to the you know the images that that waft over you. And like a little bit, it's this like it's this like well, this is the campfire. Uh, I mean, my my god, that the, the Emmy Awards co-opt some of this sanctimony, right? Like television is the warm glow around which the world gathers. Like, as as uh, you know, humankind has gathered for centuries around fire to tell itself stories of who and what it is. Now, I'm I want to be careful here, Pete, because I, like you, feel the gravitational pull of doing the episode where we fix the American theater. And, yeah. and, and that's not this episode. is no, no, <laughs> not the time. Right? Um, so so I I'll just say that when I was um uh yeah uh, i want to talk about liveness more generally now when i when i was in my 20s and doing like things with like starting theater companies we had ideas about what actually what was ailing uh the institutional american theater both commercial and not-for-profit and we had at least some ideas about how to make some efforts that, in in terms of like either fixing them or trying to develop uh, other models but i talked to a friend of ours who worked in in um management consulting in like and in like branding and leadership sort of areas and i I talked to this friend of ours about this uh, and and she asked me what is what is the unique value of the liveness of the live performance, right? What what are the things? What is the the I guess the what is the marketing word unique selling proposition, right? Of the of the aspect of of this art that is that is live that couldn't be done on on TV. Because let me tell you, I've spent a hundred and twenty five dollars on a hot theater ticket and come away with an experience that is inferior to a middling episode of mad men (laughs) just see you know and that like the the fact that it's live means you're you're taking that risk and um i guess uh you know and and the fact that it's not i don't know the fact that it's not commercial or that it's not uh uh sort of um it's not shaped by market forces in quite the same way that that other things are, especially in, in the nonprofit sector it means you're you're taking that risk. But I don't I don't want to hog all the air. Uh, Mark, what what do you think? Have you responded because uh, to the, the dearth of live performance because of the three of us, you go to the temple of uh, American commercial theater, Broadway, more than than Peter, I either of us do.
2: Yeah, before the baby came, I was probably going to to a Broadway show or play like once a month, once every other month. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty pretty good clip. But before I I try to unspool some of my thoughts on this, like do they make uh, do they
0: make you drag the sack of gold coins behind you to pay for those tickets or do they take credit?
2: I take Bitcoin, Matt. No, um, no, they do, don't take Bitcoin. Um, but before I go there, like, what was your answer to that question about what was the unique selling proposition, I unique value proposition? I, of actually, the
0: I couldn't come up with one. I was working at the time in the nonprofit uh, theater space. And so it was it was a lot of this uh, uh, sanctimonious BS around like the the f- following the human spirit across its frontierless to re- journey across the terrain of the frontier, of the frontierless human spirit, and what binds us together, and what makes us unique, and, uh, you know, all of this BS, and and you know what, like, you should go, actually, I read a book by Anne Bogart, who's an avant-garde theater director, and like, uh, what she said was a lot of us, you know, a lot of us, even those of us who are committed to this art form, go to this, go to the theater as though we're taking our medicine, right, as though we're doing a chore, and even in the, in the the language that people use if you're in the community to come out to their dumb shows that they do, right? Like, please come support live theater. Please come support the arts, support, support, right? There's this idea that you're like Mm. paying, paying a tax on your, like on your membership in the NPR class. And, and Bogart said, "Sorry, Mark, you pulled my string, and now i I just have to get it all out. Um, we should not go to theaters that we're doing homework. We should go to the theater as though we 're going to a hot date, and thinking about that, you know that is um that is what has been missing from a lot of bad theater experiences that I've had. We, we thought a lot about how to, how to create that, that sense of, that sense of excitement, that sense of kind of gratification and promise, uh, or promise of gratification, I suppose. And also that sense of like the kind of sexy risk of it, you know, the, the kind of sexy danger quality that, uh, that you can get. We, we talked about how to kind of create these things in the work, in the work we were doing and you know happy to to hold forth about that but i i want to toss to you
2: sexy danger got it okay (laughs) that's not exactly what i was expecting but there's that's 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 actually a good way to put it i mean you know like not so much like sexy as in like sexual and danger as in like you know you're going to have um daggers from the stage thrown out into the audience and someone might get impaled um but like allure and sense of risk and unexpectedness um I think is I think is what you're going right is that is that a fair way to to rephrase it Matt?
0: Yeah Look, there's a difference between a gunfight on stage and a sword fight on stage. A gunfight has no tension in it except maybe if you don't like loud noises because you know it's not, I mean, well, not I mean there have been tragic accidents, but like in the course of of, you know, normal experience, you know it's not real, right? And you know that there's nothing at stake. If you watch a sword fight on stage, they're actually jumping all over the place and swinging huge Pieces of metal uh, at one another, right? Like that, there there is actual risk, and like creating an actual event, um, you know, as opposed to the simulacrum uh, of an event. I would say is a lot of is what a lot of better theater training goes yeah.
2: goes to. Uh, I, I mean, we're this is the overthinking of podcasts, and we are by our very definition in nature overthinking sexy dangerous. it. Right? We're sexy but, dangerous.
0: Oh no, sorry, that's not what you
2: saying. also also that, but like. You know, anybody who's been to a good life performance I – mean, comedy is a better example of this, right? And this is beginning a little bit away from, like, the the artistic nonprofit theater stuff that, that started this conversation. But, you know, the fact that, like, laughter is contagious and spreads and – you know, does something when a hundred people are laughing at the same thing together uh, in a very different way than when you watch a Netflix uh, uh, comedy special in your living room. Like that's very self-evident. People know that already. And yet it seems like people need to be convinced of that over and over again. Why do you think that is?
1: I mean, I think, well, the Guthrie guy, says something to this effect. And I didn't really go into his video is actually quite good. It's only four minutes long. But one thing he does mention is that people that there was some, he cites some study that people who watch a show together, that their heart rates can synchronize. And I find that really interesting. Uh, and I, and I, I also couple it with Matt's talking about the sexy danger. And I would have given a similar answer, which is that, you know, locating your physical body, in a theater space as either a a performer or an audience member or some sort of nebulous thing in the middle, which is fairly common in the kind of theater I've gone to the most, which is, you know, five, 10, $15 indie comedy, which I've gone to, you know, hundreds and hundreds of shows. And and there's all sorts of different relationships with the audience and, and the performers. But the idea that you are a physical being in the theater and that your body responds to being in the theater in a physical way uh, and that might mean that, you know, you're, you're, you're intrigued or titillated or thrilled or that you laugh next to other people who are laughing in a way that you don't when you're at home by yourself. Right. Or that you you kind of feel a shared pathos with other people that you might not feel if you're at home by yourself. Or it might also just mean that you meet other people and you're kind of out and among people and that there's a certain f- need to be among people that we're all feeling that we're a little bit low on right now in in the world to to understate it right and so so i might i might suggest that 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 is a big part of what's going on is people resist there's a couple the two reasons i would say that people would resist this kind of conclusion are one um the whole discourse around it is is very is very chased by necessity of the circumstance right uh you know the when the nonprofit theater is soliciting donations from 65 year olds they're not necessarily going to do that language of you know that you might hear at a theater workshop where it's like we're all just going to go out there and do what turns us on right which is a very common sort of phraseology to encounter when working in the theater and is of course part of the fraught and difficult relationship that the theater and and performing arts and the arts in general has with sexual harassment and sexual misconduct but this notion that like uh, that there is an, a level of excitement and arousal and thrill in the physical presence with the work uh, that is happening. Right. I shouldn't even say the work because it rarefies it too much. But, you know, like all these people having all these intense feelings and doing all this intense, crazy stuff. Right. And you're there. Right. You can you know smell the sweat. Right. And that 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 we don't want to acknowledge that that and this is something that goes back to hundreds of years problematizing the theater because the theater used to be, you know, there didn't used to necessarily be this sense that the theater was high class and rarefied. You know, the theater being an accessible place for body entertainments uh, is is as big in story to tradition as anything else. Uh, in regarding the theater, but but it's sort of like it gets caught up, right? We don't want to acknowledge that we go to the theater to be thrilled. That that a theater might have a lot to, in common with a dance hall or even a strip club in terms of why why what is it about human beings that causes them to congregate in such places? Um, you know, you, the idea you know, of like, I, well, I had, you know, a, you wanna...
0: I had a, a Shakespeare uh, director, artistic director of a summer Shakespeare festival, who I will not name, who said, "I could do." Midsummer Night's Dream all day, every day, and these yokels would line up for it. <laughs> to which, to which I say, hee haw.
1: I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not just saying that it's sexual. I'm saying that it is. you know. Arousing
0: in this in the right? neurological yeah. sense, it's neurologically yeah, yeah, that, arousing. That, that you can have your, a complex
1: yeah. sort of relationship that isn't just a sort of commodified transaction, but at the same time, this desire to kind of decouple the human experience from the physical participation in bodies in motion is doomed. Uh, right? And uh, because you know there will always be cakes and ale, this you know thus that was purchased. But at the same time, that feels like a capitulation to our. To really bad behavior, and so it all kind of spirals and becomes very difficult to talk about. But I think the other reason I think that it's tough is I think people people want to believe in a problem solving sense that that we can make that we can transpose uh, experience. Right. They want to believe, I think, that you can that the reasons that people object to change are stupid uh, and that uh, and that we can create equivalence and the confounding dynamic in this. other And there's a kind of confounding dynamic, which is just change aversion and loss aversion from people. But there's also this really pernicious confounding dynamic, which is basically this. I think that if everybody were really in the matrix, a lot more people would know. Right. Like and and I and I don't think that and and this notion that you could that you could separate somebody's experience entirely from their reality. Uh, I know. I mean, maybe not in that very, very strict sense, because these computers have all sorts of unrealistic uh, abilities to kind of manipulate the human mind. But what I'm saying is like you're you can subconsciously feel or know things about your situation that you don't allow your conscious mind to think about yourself right and i guess that is sort of what morpheus sort of proposes in the matrix right which is to an extent at least sub, sub you know subliminally that that mr anderson knows that this isn't really his real life in the matrix and the reason that and he's talked himself into believing that this is his real life and i think that when you do psychological work on yourself you find out this sort of thing right like oh you know I may have convinced myself that I'm happy doing the thing that I'm doing right now, but on some level, my brain knows that I'm not happy or there's something I'm lacking or I'm having some sort of issue with this. And I've convinced myself not to worry about it, And it's, but it's there and it's still going to continue to cause me problems, right? And so this idea – like there's that thought experiment. Would you accept being put into the matrix, right, If you, if you could just be happy? And and there and then people struggle with arguing against it. But one suggestion I would have is like, well, if you knew, then like, would you ever really be able to allow yourself not to know? And and um, and in that sense, you know, if what you need is to be among people. Right. If you want to go and have a communal experience among other people then you can, and the theater has done this, you can go and watch you know, something on TV and you can feel a sort of echo of that, but on some sort of subconscious level, it doesn't feel the same, at least to me. Now, granted, sometimes theater is very bad and expensive. Uh, that is very true, and um, and it's not a reliable way to achieve this sort of thing. But when it is good, it's really good. And also, I think just in general, if you expand it beyond just theater to live attendance in general, sporting events, I did mention pro wrestling, right, like being present among people. What I'm saying is that, you know, we're all kind of overestimating how much of Netflix and chill is Netflix <laughs> and we're underestimating how much of it is chill. Right. Like people. I mean, that's the joke. Right. Is like, oh, let's come Netflix and chill. How much Netflixing are you really going to do in that situation? The ideal answer is not much. Right. Um. Uh, although I guess someone would argue, but you said we would watch Netflix. I can't believe that you wanted to chill. And it's like, but I said Netflix and chill. I'm sorry. Am I? Am I? Am I? Am I landing with any of this? Does any of this make sense? I think. I think um, that's
0: right. So I'm. I'm curious about some of the like the compensatory moves that we've made. Uh, you know, just under our current, you know, under the situation of quarantine and and social distancing and all you know, uh, all these related uh, related circumstances, right? Like, so you guys have done some, uh, and we've done some together, and you two have done some together, um, some like quarantine lockdown efforts at at performances and stuff like that. Tell, uh, let's talk about some of those and like how they've how they've gone for you. Like, Mark, you got us into uh, a, and, and I wasn't able to join at least for the first one, but like start, start started these uh, play readings that were done online over Zoom. And I've participated in this kind of thing before. Uh, how was your experience with it?
2: It was a lot of fun. It's it's a very different thing than what we were just talking about before, because uh, earlier the discussion in the theater was about being in the audience and, you know, uh, observing and receiving uh the entertainment in that live setting as opposed to over the television and what we did was you know read an agatha christie play over zoom and so we were the particip, we were both participants and and audience um in, in that weird kind of way you know, especially because it's on zoom and you're watching it you know, on, on a television screen so it falls into this like very strange nether region of sorts uh, where it covers you know or, or, or straddles both areas um uh, just to back up a little bit here, what I'm, what I'm talking about is that uh, you know, at the beginning of the quarantine, someone had suggested in the New York Times, um, you know, rather than just like have an open-ended Zoom chat or video chat with your friends, try a structured activity like play a game or read a play. Um, Agatha Christie plays are I don't know if they're public domain, but at least they're very easily accessible on the Internet. We pulled down um, the scripts for three blind mice and then there were none. And then uh, something else as well. And so thought three by mice mousetrap. Uh, and then there were none. I believe there's another one that I'm that I'm forgetting. Um, oh, oh, oh um, the 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 Witness jury for the prosecution. Witness for the, Witness for the prosecution? Yeah. Um. And so uh, we quote unquote performed them on Zoom. And there were uh, Pete. You were one of the kind of the, uh, one of a handful of professionally trained actors who who did join this. But the vast majority, I'm not majority... professionally
1: trained. I'm academically trained. I'm not professionally. Oh, <laughs> I guess we're, I'm we're improv. Sli- we're splitting trained. hairs. Pete, yeah, yeah. I got trained, professional improv
2: well. training. That's true. Fair enough. Um. But mostly enthusiastic amateurs um and we didn't rehearse at all we just like read the scripts uh you know uh, into our screen such as it were and um and and had a lot of fun doing it um uh pete would you say that, uh, that they were at least like you know enjoyable and entertaining as like ways to pass the time
1: oh yeah the agatha christie plays were really interesting Um, And even though I still really wanted to give all you guys a hug, right? And it's like I see these familiar faces and I feel that yearning to kind of be in the same space as we talked about it was, it was definitely an interesting occasion and the restrictions bred at creativity. So the, I think through experience, what we found was that who done work really well, especially who done that like, not everybody's familiar with, or most people don't know because you read, you're doing a cold reading. And so you all find out while you're reading the play, what happens and what the twists are. Uh, and so like, don't read ahead, right? You know, stick with it. Read only your character. You'll read only your lines. Don't read too far ahead in the script. Um, I mean, I guess you listen to what everybody else says, and then, um, and especially with the old timey Agatha Christie whodunits and other sorts of theatrical whodunits, there are often these bawdy and delightful twists. Right. That are that are kind of worked into the structure of the thing and are themselves, you know, beautiful and, and and sometimes they're ugly, but they're also beautiful and just and it's just such entertainment. And there's just a real shape to them. Right. There's a whole there's like a shared experience of the shape of this art object you're all appreciating. And it just is earnestly entertaining and fun. And so I highly I highly recommend it. Um, funny voices are, are encouraged, mm, accents. Um, you know. Accents are great.
2: If you, if you do them among friends and they're ethnic, they're not well they're, there's at least a context and understanding, and it's not offense. <laughs>
1: I mean, one of the you know one of the one of the big arguments that you can make in terms of live live experience is you, the degree of participation. well, i would I would say when you're evaluating different modes of entertainment, one of the axes is the engagement and participation of the audience. And having a sort of Zoom reading and sort of the old style, right? We're all gathered around the fire to read poems or read a play together. Uh, it's it's just it has such a wonderful mixture of of listening and watching and experiencing and participating. And it's just it's really
2: yeah. nice. So. And just to draw back to the actual live theater, the participation part, you know, even though you if you are an audience member and you're not like called upon to, you know, suggest a non-geographical location like in an improv show. Um, you still are a participant in that regard, right? In, in, in the traditional regard of, like, you applaud, you gasp, you laugh, um, you inject your element into the performance, and in a way, you do help shape it. Is that a fair way to describe what the audience does?
1: Oh, yeah, like, like the uh, – you're talking about – yeah, the, the, the feedback – right yeah. the audience provides to the performer. even at like the, the simplest level of like you know on one night you know a certain
2: joke just kills and the laughter yeah. peels and peels and peels and like the the, the the performer just like sits back and takes it in and lets the pause and then proceeds with the show and then on another night if the joke just doesn't land for whatever reason the performance is all off the audience was in a bad mood um you know the the, the laughter is more muted uh and and the performer reacts accordingly
1: Right. I mean, the biggest place you see this is in pro-wrestling in empty rooms <laughs> where like some performers really need to feed off the energy they get from the crowd and some performers are able to bottle whatever madness they have right um, you know maybe maybe Chris Jericho has just heard the crowd roar so many times that it's permanent he has like r- tinnitus from the crowd screaming at him and so he, he's never yeah. he's never without an audience but can, you can, know, we, can me- we do a sidebar on that briefly like how,
2: I saw a video clip of this it must have been like you know as lockdowns first started to happen that WWE was doing Monday Night Raw you know their weekly mm-hmm. uh, wrestling show to empty arenas, yeah. Um, because like uh, I guess at, at this point they can't do it at all. But the, at the time it was in this weird uh, you know beginning phase of the of the lockdowns where the performers could all and the in the cast and crew and everyone could come out and do their thing, but no one could be in the rafter in in the stands to do it. How many times did they do that uh, and like w- like what what additional context, Pete? Are you aware?
1: Oh of well, I mean I'm, I'm I would say i mean well they did wrestlemania right they did a two-day wrestlemania with no crowd really yeah oh my oh, god won the won the belt <laughs> he won the 24 7 belt by jumping off of like a spiral staircase i think onto like seven dudes yeah no they did all sorts of crazy high concept <laughs> short video work like it was it, it was it, wrestlemania was a gas this year and really weird Uh, And I know that we never really talked about it on the podcast, but I kind of feel like that's something people are going to be talking about for a long time. Uh, You know, there was this sort of dream hellscape exploration of the past lives of John Cena. Right. Which was sort of like in a a kind of, you know, self self-incrimination, self-investigation, self-destruction, jaunt down memory lane, kind of it's it's a John Cena life kind of thing. You know, there was a short film where The Undertaker was in a graveyard and stuff. Uh, I mean, I would also cite AEW. It's not just WWE that's doing it. I think it's been a real opportunity for the AEW also, which is the current biggest rival to the WWE. Uh, and you've got Chris Jericho over there and even Matt Hardy over there. And, and one of the things you see there is they have much sort of they're, they're willing to go farther outside the box in terms of going high concept or getting weird with stuff, and I think that that helps when there's no crowd, right, because whether you're over or whether the crowd is cheering for you is no longer there to validate what's going on, and so like really strange character concepts or narrative arcs uh, have more space to fill. Um, so, but no, there's been a ton of wrestling. There's been a ton of wrestling in silence. Uh, and, uh, I'm not sure. I haven't really been following exactly what Vince McMahon has been planning because, uh, you know, I don't, uh, it doesn't make me feel good to read about it. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, uh, I mean, in general, I think Vince McMahon's moves are best considered in retrospect. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they, they did a big 25 year anniversary thing for Triple H. So there's been a lot of wrestling. Wrestling has been around. Um, I mean, I think they even got classified as an essential business in Florida, right? Um, that because, is correct. I mean, that, I mean, people don't pin themselves, right? So, like, jabronis don't, you know.
0: <laughs> don't know? Don't roll their own no or yeah, something. I tell
1: you, I'm in a wrestling I'm on an online wrestling league. Did I tell you guys this? Maybe no, I should put this in yeah. the podcast. Yeah, let's put it's, it yeah, in you, the you, notes. You, you, you created like uh, avatar
2: versions of yourself in the wrestling game, right? Yeah,
1: it's all done through like an, a friend of mine does it through his Xbox. Right? So it's sort of like we're all Xbox characters and we all have a league where he plays AI matches of us against each other and then we send him promo videos of us trash talking each other and then he shares the shows on YouTube and we all watch them um, And it's, it's called quarantine action wrestling and it's a lot of fun. Um, so uh, if you want to check that out, by all means, I, I make no promises about the quality of my work. I have a newborn baby, <laughs> but, but it is, but it is a lot of fun. Um, so yeah. So, that, so yeah. So, to answer your question, wrestling exists, it is plentiful and it is strange. Um, and uh, I mean, yeah, the shows have been suspended, like they hit an end of a season, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, yeah. but, but it is but- definitely, definitely weird. To, to
2: go back to to go back to the Zoom play readings, now to be really clear, if you were like just log if you're not one of the participants and you just logged on to watch it, or like if we hit record and shared it out, it would be terrible. Right? Like it's not like it's not meant to be entertainment in that way to so be just kind of passively consumed. Um but uh, uh, it was enjoyable for, for those who did it, nonetheless. I I, I would ask, and though... Well, why? Wait, other... wait, wait,
0: wait, wait, wait. I, I'm, I'm not satisfied with that. Why would it be bad? Like, why wouldn't I be... If you're just reading the story and kind of acting it out and having fun with it, why wouldn't I have fun watching you do that?
2: It, it's act, Acting out is, is, is being too charitable to it because... <laughs> You know, um you know, for the most part, we're like you know we're not we're looking at the screen, we're not engaging like you know really with the visual medium, uh we're just reading the damn thing off of our our because it's the first time that we've done it, and you know there's not like a lot of there's minimal pantomime um it's not like you know an interesting visual thing it goes back to the theater director uh point about how. You know, theater fundamentally is, you know, to experience live. And if you put it on the screen, then it's you're competing against film and TV Mm. uh, and it kind of defeats the purpose of that. Um, But uh, interestingly, though, what we just did last night, the Zoom karaoke, there was like a fair amount of just like sitting back and and being an audience. For something that is we typically experience in person, but then it was being sublimed through, um, sublimated through Zoom. I'm talking about like the, the karaoke party that we had. Right? Yeah,
0: so we we had a karaoke party, uh, some overthinking at friends and some some other friends, and and uh, you know, and so it it turns out that like because Zoom is a screen sharing medium, uh, you can share like a YouTube video playing on your screen, and turns out also YouTube is chock full of karaoke versions of your favorite. Uh, karaoke songs and so if you google like just name of song karaoke or youtube search i should say name of song karaoke you're probably going to find a track which you can uh share your screen and share the audio of and uh sing along uh at the same time and the synchronization the syn- synchronization between uh the track and the the vocal performance is like a it was like a B plus right like it's 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 close enough for jazz um and that's uh you know and it's uh it's great fun um so so we did this and like i definitely you know i definitely found the there was a a like the in a in a private room karaoke setting like there's a lot or even a bar karaoke setting there is a lot of this aspect of like there's bodies in space (laughs) you know there's like there's sexy danger because like you don't know what people are going to try to sing like you don't know if they're going to be good or be terrible you know you don't know if you're going to get up like are you going to dance are you going to you know what is what is the there's a kind of uh, certain aspects of uncertainty about the experience that make it exciting and and um you know it it excites more senses than than just the kind of the passive ones seeing and, seeing and hearing like there's a, a a touch component as your feet stick to the the geologic layers of beer spilled on the linoleum floor of your private room karaoke studio there's a uh, a smell in the air from all the bodies in this space and and um uh, and there's, you know, uh, other things, tastes, the tastes of the chicken wings that, that you eat, the mozzarella sticks as they're brought into you. It excites all the, all the senses at once. And I definitely was, was missing that. But the, the feeling of like, of the screen kind of objectifying was something that, that I definitely, that I definitely had when I, uh, finished one of my performances, like I, uh, that I did, I was a a little bit where the um, where I would expect just a huge kind of roar of of like camaraderie at the end. I I won't say approval because I don't think I was great, but like uh, camaraderie at the end. It was sort of silent, you know, because everyone's on mute politely observing you doing doing your thing and so like a, as a performer I definitely felt that that remove and also as a viewer I sort of you know you hear the pitch a little more clearly than you do uh, when it's in person and it's like hey maybe this person actually can't sing journeys don't stop believing uh, like that's that that song is high that's awfully that's awfully ambitious and so like the some of the the fellow feeling right like some of the sort of comedy uh, is, is evacuated from the experience when, when you do it at a remove. Th- that said, um, uh, you know, it's still on balance was really, really fun and positive uh, to do, uh, you know, in just in itself. I'm, I'm comparing it with the, the other version, the, the version that you do when you're all together.
1: Right. I, I would say what in a practical sense... The biggest difference between live performance and taped performance is that when you are present in a space, you create the collage, right? Like, we're not able with our senses to take in the full scope of a performance while it's happening. We assemble it in our brains from little snapshots from what we look at, what we choose to look at, what we choose to listen to, uh, and and also what kind of interferes with that. And so— There the you don't have as much choice as to what to pay attention to when the eye of the camera is dictating it. Right. And that's the sort of practical Mm. issue. uh, Right. And that's sort of a film theory notion. Right. It's like the the eye of the camera dictates what you pay attention to. And um, in the case of karaoke, I kind of feel like, you know, if somebody is, is out there and they're really giving it their all. And, you know, maybe not the best singer, like there's a lot of other noise in the room. You don't have to dwell on the pitch. But if you're kind of staring directly at them on a computer screen in a silent room, like what else are you going to pay attention to? Right. It's, it's just there. I think there's a dimension of focus. Uh, what what is the focus? You know, what what is everybody focusing on? That's different in uh, that's different in live shows. And, I mean, you might say, well, this is something that you could get to in VR. Maybe, sure. But at the same time, you know, the VR window is still going to move uh, through some sort of algorithm or, or, you know. I mean, obviously, you have to move your head or you move your eyes. You have to do that in real life, too. But um, it would take a very sophisticated VR, I think, to give you the same sort of uh, control, right, to sort of vary and curate your own experience of reality, uh, you know, let alone the drinks that also do so in a karaoke bar yeah, <laughs> um, the,
2: as such. The, the, There's another really interesting aspect of this Zoom karaoke experience, which is that, um, you know, you're saying that the camera dictates, you know, when you're watching like a TV show, the the camera dictates or the editing dictates what you pay attention to. Um, And uh, it's sort of the case in Zoom karaoke. Like the the default view is that, you know, you're – You're watching the shared screen of the other person that that, that the singer has put out there, and maybe like a a video thumbnail or something like that, right? But once you start looking around the video settings, you can bring back the gallery view that we've all become very familiar with in a Zoom call, and then you can start to see what other people are doing and how they're reacting um, along to it. Like some just have their screen off. Other people are just like sitting there, and they're they're, they're, like probably scrolling through Twitter on their their computer, and then others uh, cough, Ryan cough – uh, Kodiak um, are are like vigorously dancing along <laughs> with it. And so like you can choose to pay attention to that or not. Um, it's it, well, it's it's like um, I don't know, like, it's like, if, like if you're watching a sporting event and you've got like I, there's like an enhanced presentation of it where you can like choose your camera angles and things like that. That's the closest analogy I can think of.
1: Right, right,
0: right. Yeah, yeah if for you, sure. I, I'm like, I'm actually, I'm put in mind now of a body of of literature, um, frankly ridiculous body of literature uh, that I was familiar with in the '90s, which were this sort of like extropians or sort of futurist a, a kind of like future technologically enabled futurism that was uh like one of the proponents of this was like Ray Kurzweil on the idea of the singularity and talked about you know in had these sort of uh fiction um thought experiments in some of his books where he talked about people whose uh main companions are are AIs you know and what their what their uh experiences and and i mean pete do do you feel like um, do you feel like given a an interface that was adequate to reproduce the whole sensorium and kind of interact with it in real time you you could like one hundred percent recreate uh the experience of the thing is it or is it the fact that there is could the technology be um improved to the point that there's no remove at which there's no kind of uh uh, uh mediation right between between you and the experience what i'm saying peter is do we
1: have souls is uh, that's what i want to <laughs> know you know i think the the challenge as i'm thinking about it as we've articulated it is that there are subconscious elements to experience that we that are not apparent and that we are not aware of and that these subconscious elements are have dependent variables related to us and our bodies and our minds and our personal histories and a whole lot of other things that are that are true only for us and localized only to us in a way that we could assert with any sort of confidence in a subjective manner, right? They they are probably shared across a large number of other people. Uh, You know, a lot of people probably have similar sorts of feelings, and you could kind of guess, but you can't really know, right? There's a sort of problem of other minds there. You don't really know. Uh, And furthermore, because they are subconscious, they are hard to measure. And so it's not uh, that—it's not just that the technology can't be made— That could symbol that could uh, simulate it. The issue is, would you be able to measure whether you had succeeded at doing it? And 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 sort of the way in which people seek to solve problems has a very sort of Wittgensteinian approach to it. Right. Which is like, if we can't really demonstrate, if we can't really say that we've observed it, we can't really absurd uh, assert for it to be true. You know, certainly we don't fully understand all of the subconscious factors that go into, you know, human experience in a general sense. And we don't understand them in a specific sense for an individual person. So so. So we can't necessarily assert that they even exist. If we don't know what they are and we can't measure them, uh, then we have to do the best that we can. And the tech paradigm would be, okay, what's the best product you can make with the information you have and the metrics you have about your customer? And so in that sense, that mentality is going to run into severe limitations in terms of creating an experience that's on parity with live, I think, right? Because the whole notion of like, well, we'll just measure it. Right. It's like people won't tell you the truth because they don't know the truth. And I guess you could look for biological markers and you could get to some sort of very crude formation of it. But I do think that that it will be it will be different Um, unless there is some sort of thought technology that supersedes the current notion of metrics driven product development. Uh, and kind of user development in a technology space, unless there's another kind of revolution and transformation in how that works, I don't think you're going to really fully capture. Uh, the dynamic that we 're talking
0: about yeah what you 're saying yeah. is that, that we don 't know what we don 't know in a lot of you know in a lot of ways and i mean it 's actually like more than i was really taken with your your you know description of these these unquantifiable um, or potentially unquantifiable unconscious factors um, being you know uh, so so path is so dependent on uh, our history is so dependent on our subject subjectivity. The other thing is that they're dynamic, like they change over time, you know, and that like one of the most gratifying things about going to see music live for me, for example, in bands, you know, with bands that I know or don't know, um, is that you can look at the communication happening. You can look at that, like that open network connection, you know, that non buffered, uh, real time exchange of data. Um, among the musicians, you know, presuming that they are uh, trained enough, skillful enough at their, their instruments and, and experienced enough playing together, um, or experienced enough playing that they can discover playing together, um, like watching that happen, like one of, one of the things I love in music is like hearing something that I think is amusing or funny, a little joke that someone slips in or something like that. And like looking at the bassist, like look over to the keyboard player and kind of like smirk, like, yeah, got that, you know? And that, that sort of evolving, the kind of the, the, the evolving sense of, um, the evolving sense of of the subjective um sensory but not just sensory uh experience there is i agree like the the main thing you know that seems to confound our our efforts to um our efforts to kind of substitute for the actual live experience going, uh, going into, you know, while we've been in, in quarantine and watching, you know, the national theater live, uh, YouTube streams, which by the way, I highly recommend. Like if, if you can't have it, it's again, it's like zoom karaoke. It's not that it's bad. It's good. It's just, uh, it is inferior to the real thing. Um, yes. you know, and that's, uh, uh, I, I don't even want that. Frames it negatively. The real thing is superior to it. There, that's it. that sort of frames it maybe more positively. Um, uh, that said, like it, it if you cannot eat you know, a, a three course meal and all you can have is a nutrigrain grain bar, right? Like there is some nourishment in that, in that Nutri-Grain bar. And, uh, rather than not eat the nutrigrain grain bar, I, you know, it, it is probably better for your body and your soul, um, that in a world of nutrigrain grain bars that you eat the nutrigrain grain bar. So, uh, enjoy your nutrigrain grain bar. Thank you for, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this Nutri-Grain Bar, the Overthinking It podcast. Thank you, Mark and Pete, for podcasting with me. We'll be back with more Overthinking It podcast next week. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the Nutri-Grain Bar to a level of scrutiny it It probably probably doesn't deserve.
2: I don't know about you guys, but I spent the second half of this podcast uh, thinking about how amazing it would be if a non theater put on a stage production of The Matrix. <laughs> right? 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 Yeah, Start yeah, think yeah. about it. Right? Huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know. Right? Amazing. <laughs> that will save the theater after the pandemic. Yeah.
0: <laughs> bullet time. Bullet time. Everybody's spending over bullet time. Woo. Hi, I'm Harvey Fierstein. Are you going to take the red pill or the blue pill?